was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two philosophers sat down to discuss. <laughs> What do, what do we want to say we are as humans such that we can be killed in these situations or not? Welcome to the fifth delivery of such death casts. It's a week later than I had planned, which is a result of the chaos that tends to accumulate in academia sometimes. It never ceases to amaze me how deadlines tend to gravitate towards each other, which means that there are these peaks once in a while where everything just lapses into chaos and desperate attempts to keep your head above water. This is one of those times, but I didn't want to start slipping too much with this podcast schedule, so here is another episode, and not just any episode. I'll be talking to Peter Asaro, who is assistant professor at the School of Media Studies at the New School for Public Engagement in New York. Peter is also co-founder of the International Committee for Robot Arms Control, and as such, he completes his triangle of some of the most influential robot ethicists of today, together with the previous guests, Wendell Wallach and Noel Sharkey. And I find it fascinating how he's coming to this field from a very different perspective, combining science and technology studies and sociology with a very interesting view of technology as media, makes for an all the more interesting conversation, which I'm happy to be able to share with you. I should let you know that there will be a special guest appearance by the Dutch weather in this episode, but I hope that won't distract too much from the brilliant mind of philosopher Peter Asaro. So without further ado, Sachet Cast Episode 5. I, I was always interested in philosophy, I think, for without really knowing what philosophy was, uh, and then you sort of figure that out at some point. Um, I got really lucky. There was actually a philosophy literature class that was taught in my high school, and got to read some ancient philosophy, some modern philosophy, and just pretty much realized, yeah, that's that's what I need to be reading and doing. Um, so when I went to college, I s- pursued philosophy as well, um, but I kept changing my second major. So I was interested in a lot of different things. Initially, I was really interested in physics and cosmology and the origins of the universe and all that kind of stuff. So I double majored in physics. And then I quickly realized I didn't really want to do physics. Um, So I ended up switching, I think, then to political science. I did some religion and eventually came into psychology and sort of discovered cognitive psychology. Mm -hmm. And about that time, I took my first seminar in... uh, philosophy as a kind of advanced class and it was a great seminar and that's kind of shaped me a, a lot I think it was, the seminar was called uh, can machines think so I got really hooked on that and it was actually just two students and two professors in the <laughs> class so uh, it was very intense and we read um, mind design a uh, Hoagland's compilation yeah and uh, you know I just kind of went through each article and dissected it and then that's the first time I think I really thought about, okay, this is what philosophy is, to do philosophy, to like analyze these arguments, take them apart, put them back together, figure out how they work, figure out how to make a better argument. Right. Um, and, and that problem was just completely fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'd always been interested in computers and 
robots and remote control stuff and things like that. But uh, the theory of it, you know, I'd learned to program and things like that. So um, the philosophy of it, I think, though, was more interesting. But I under wanted to do the technology, too. So I wound up, they didn't have a computer science major, um, but I was the, I think I was the first computer science minor to graduate from my undergrad program, and subsequently they created a major. Wound up graduating with a sort of second created major in cognitive science, and did a thesis in cognitive science right. on this problem of, you know, can machines think, and really just focused there on issues of representation, mental representation, and computational representation, and um, pretty much just wanted to do that in grad school, too. So I went for philosophy of mind uh, to the University of Illinois. But as soon as I got there, the person they had teaching philosophy of mind left, decided not to come back to the university and took another job. So they were stuck with nobody to teach it for the first year. So I kind of went through um, all the history classes that were required, Nietzsche, Wittgenstein, Kant, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And then... um, somebody recommended that I take this uh, sociology of technology class. And I thought, yeah, technology is really cool, right? And, like, they didn't really have any philosophy of technology classes. So I was like, well, that's pretty close. I'll check it out. He's supposed to be a cool guy, this Andrew Pickering character. Um, So I wound up in his seminar, and I realized that that was actually a really interesting way of pursuing it. So I kind of shifted at that point into the philosophy of science, per se. Instead of sort of thinking about the mind-body problem and, you know, what does it mean to have this material object that's doing computation and what whether it can think, whether humans think in the same way that machines can do calculations or computations. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's already caught up in all these very specific notions and theoretical structures, but, like, where did those come from? Yeah. How, what do we think of when we think that the brain computes a certain way? So I was became really fascinated with science and technology studies and the history and emergence of these sort of fields of study like cognitive science and artificial intelligence as uh, uh, scientific pursuits and social practices. Um, so really then kind of dove into the history of it, which led me straight into cybernetics. And the University of Illinois, where I was at, happened to have had the biological computer lab uh, in the 1960s that Hans von Forrester had run. Wow. So the archives were all still there, um, and Andy Pickering had been kind of interested in them and had sent another grad student to look at them and didn't, wasn't really, didn't really find too much and then told me about it, and I was like, I'll go look at that archive. Oh, yeah. And I found all kinds of great stuff. So it's, right. it was really a pretty, pretty amazing place. And um, I mean, there was a lot of people doing cybernetics uh, in the 1950s and 60s, but there were really very few labs that were building electronic devices within the cybernetic uh, field. So you had MIT and McCulloch, and they were doing a lot of animal brain experiments. Um, You had people doing a lot of more straightforward computation, some various analog computers and processors and things like that. But the BCL was building bionic ears and artificial brains and self-organizing networks um, out of analog computation, soldering stuff together. It's building all kinds of crazy stuff. W. Ross Ashby was there as well. Right. So I became really interested in his work. Mm-hmm. Um, and primarily Von Forrester and, and Ashby are the ones that I was most compelled by because of the clarity of their writing and their theoretical rigor. So yeah, they're very rigorous and they were very, like their thought was very expansive. Like they considered a lot of things. Wiener did that too. 
but um, very few people have done much work on Don Forrester and Ashby, so I kind of felt like they were a little bit neglected in this yeah, story. Um, and of course, McCulloch um, had placed Von Forrester as the editor of the Macy Conferences, so he kind of got this uh, launched into the midst of cybernetics as a very young man. Um, so he was part of that first generation, but he was actually a gen, you know, much younger than than most of the rest of those guys. Right. <clears throat> yeah, so I spent a lot of time kind of thinking through all of that and figuring all of that out. And and that was, a, yeah, that was a big chunk of my graduate career. So I was doing philosophy and sociology and history, and then I uh, decided to go and do some graduate work in computer science while I was there and try to look at uh, AI from a insider's perspective as well. So I started with the master's, and then my professors there talked me into doing a PhD so I'm technically uh, ABD, or all but dissertation in okay. computer science. Oh, um, and I went through several advisors. People kept leaving the university, and it uh, becomes really hard to finish a dissertation. Yeah. So when I got a really nice postdoc offer, I took that after my philosophy PhD. So. Oh, yeah. So. But I kind of did both degrees concurrently, and the university didn't really like that. All right. And what was your philosophy PhD on? So, um, so I wound up in a program that they offered called the History, Philosophy, and Sociology of Science, but it was through the philosophy department. But that allowed me to take history and sociology courses, and in order to, they had a language requirement, <clears throat> but to meet the language requirement, I could take mathematics courses. So, so my degree is technically in the History, Philosophy, and Sociology of Science from the Department of Philosophy, right. um, and that was the topic was. What was the topic? Um, <laughs> I have to think of the title now. Oh, on the origins of the synthetic mind, and it was really about yeah, my well, my grandmother has called it the uh, fake brains. Okay, was what I worked on, and yeah. um, and I think that's what really compelled me. I mean, our, the way artificial intelligence is constructed is is very abstract. It's like intelligence is this abstract process or function, and what we're then trying to do is model that, simulate that, copy that make turn that into something computable um but really the early cyberneticians kind of pre-artificial intelligence were really fascinated by the brain and the ways in which the brain instantiated the mind and, and the relationship between that and they were really trying to create artificial brains before you know intelligence in this more abstract sense yeah. and and so the design of the computers early digital computers and analog computers were all heavily influenced by neural theories um, and neural processing. And in fact, well, Turing's whole theory of computation was um, first sort of, well, the first universal Turing machine was McCulloch and Pitt's neural network model um, and the recurrent neural network. So, um, so there was this really deep connection that sort of predated artificial intelligence. Nice. Um, and it was very embodied. It was embodied in mind. Uh, and so I became really fascinated with the kind of materiality of that history and really looking at these old devices, how they were built, and how these different scientific theories shaped the construction and design and and research agendas of these groups. Right. Um, and a lot of what passes right as intelligent is influenced by this Turing test notion of sort of passability or imitation. Right. So there's actually a whole chapter of my dissertation where I compare... Turing's theory of intelligence there with another theory that he's posthumously published, and then Ashby's theory of intelligence. And Ashby really, what was what I really liked about it, he was much more 
nuts and bolts about intelligence. Intelligence isn't like this big black box that we just sort of imitate stuff. And as long as it passes, we agree to it. It actually has some kind of structure. And we can say something is intelligent or not because it does something very specific, which is learn through trial and error, for instance. Um, and so that has very specific kind of shape and constraints, and you can do certain things with it. But if, if intelligence is just a big question mark, yeah, well, maybe we can find it. Maybe we can't. But as a theory, it doesn't really help us. It doesn't tell us which direction to go in. It just says, yeah, it might be possible. Um, and you, it's really hard to disprove because anything you know you could come up with anything and how do you know what that's going to be so i mean mathematicians proceed that way quite often but for philosophy it seemed really dissatisfying um and i i've just felt that embodiment had a big part of that right and <clears throat> and all that's you know the idea of the synthetic mind instead of the artificial intelligence but that you're actually synthesizing theories together in order to construct a notion of what the mind is right. but you're also then synthesizing material reality right. tinkering with the world and tinkering with the world in ways that are also engaged with theory so that the two are in becoming intertwined and influencing one another so your theory is responding to what happens in your material design your material design is responding to your theoretical uh, development mm -hmm. uh, going even further back uh uh, I noticed that some of your early publications were uh, very heavily focused on Wittgenstein and the private language arguments, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, was that a big interest of yours, and, and has that shaped your thinking later on? Yeah, I mean, and I think that's the, the sociality element. So I think there's two big things that I think are wrong with the kind of generally received good old-fashioned AI cognitive science kind of picture of the human mind. So one is embodiment and its lack thereof right which many people have addressed and i think you know since that i was got engaged with this work in the 1990s like a lot of people have written a lot of good work on that uh, in the last couple of decades um, the other one being sociality right like what is it to actually communicate to one another and so much of what our mind is and who we are as individuals is really who we are in relation to other individuals how we communicate with them um, which leads to my sort of current interest in media as well. Right. This sort of cashes out as language initially, right? Um, how do we create symbols that we can exchange and that make those meaningful in, in the way that language does, which is also this crazy powerful tool. Mm -hmm. And clearly, like most of our intellectual skills are acquired through linguistic interaction. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, then we have the bodily skills too. So these two things kind of seem to be missing in this um, attempt to kind of make these solipsistic minds inside of computers. Um, so I, I think that also then fed into a lot of my interest in the sociology of science and the kind of epistemology, uh, social epistemology in terms of we don't really know, right? We don't have the first person experience of witnessing all these scientific experiments. So we create these social institutions like scientific review and uh, institutes that produce knowledge for us. And like we consume this knowledge and we trust it. And how do we trust it? Why do we trust it? How is that rational? Right. Um, and, you know, what then is the semantic meaningful content of that kind of knowledge when you don't have direct access to it? And we have a lot of knowledge like that. I mean, and now with the Internet, it's just kablooey. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the private language. And then I, I did study Wittgenstein as a graduate student uh, with um, 
Peter Wench, uh, who had been a student of Rushree's, who was a student of Wittgenstein, and he had this very kind of Oxford-style right. seminar that was very strict and intense, <laughs> and uh, it was great fun. And we would really just like spend an hour talking about a single passage, for, you know, from the Tractatus or right. whatever. And and then we used to meet in his home as well. Oh, great! And uh, yeah, have a like Sunday morning reading group, drink coffee, and talk ah. Wittgenstein. <laughs> That's great. Talking about uh, meeting great people and also related to, to philosophy of mind, uh, you made a documentary, uh, again quite early on, if I'm correct, uh, where you basically travel around meeting all these big heroes of mine, at least. Like you had Daniel Bennett on and, and John Searle, if I'm right. And, and um, I've met Searle, but uh, I, I interviewed Dreyfus, Herbert Dreyfus. Dreyfus. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I kind of reached that point where I'd finished all my coursework and exams from my philosophy degree, and I'd finished all my coursework and exams from my computer science degree. Mm -hmm. I was working in a lab, and the advisor had left to go to NASA, and we still had funding for a year, so I kind of had this lab, and we'd finished all of our grant work. And uh, so I kind of had a year to figure out what I was going to do, so I decided I'll make a documentary. (laughs) Um, And again, it was this idea that embodiment and sociality were these kind of two elements that were missing from artificial intelligence. But instead of writing a philosophical text about it, I was like, well, like what's, what's the epitome of that, right? And that would be a social robot or a robot that you know, loves other people, engages in these social interactions. So the documentary is Love Machine. Yeah. Um, and uh, through a series of strange coincidences, I had come into contact with uh, the people who were making the Sibian sex machine outside of Champaign, Illinois. Um, So I thought I would sort of focus on that because I could capture the whole kind of material production process. So I was really fascinated with materiality. Um, And so I could capture this materiality because there weren't really, you know, these sex robots or androids that could be your friend or that people would treat as a girlfriend or something like that because the technology wasn't there. So most of those interviews were very hypothetical, but there were a lot of people working on aspects of social interaction and and, and human-robot interaction. Um, And then there were these people who were building these quite extravagant sex machines. And so to kind of juxtapose these interests and what does it really mean to be embodied as a human and and part of the human condition, I mean, and how much that's shaped by our need for, for love, but also for sex and like how our biology shapes who we are and our identity. Um, And then the technologies that we build around that, I think, are just fascinating. So it was, in some sense, a hypothetical construction of this future love machine, but it was also a kind of time capsule of capturing, like, what were people thinking about in, uh, it was 2000 that I filmed it, um, in terms of where all this was going and, and what the possible implications would be. Right. Did you have a background in filmmaking already, or did, was that just something you jumped into? Uh, pretty much just something I jumped into. I guess, um, in childhood, we'd always made films with the eight millimeter. Right. Um, and then my brother got really interested in video when he was in high school and he's five years older. Um, so initially we had like a little local cable access channel where if you took some training classes, you could check out the video equipment. Oh, yeah. So he and his friends would do that and they'd bring it home and make all these <laughs> videos in the backyard of you know, running around doing stupid stuff. Yeah. But then they could actually show them on local access TV, oh, which right. was pretty wild. <laughs> um, 
So he got really into it. Then I was the little brother tagging along, kind of watching all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and later he actually pursued a film degree for a little while. Uh, but he's primarily a musician now. Um, so, and I'd done a lot of photography, so I kind of was into the visuality of it. And I just, after five, six years of straight grad school and coursework and all that intensity, I was really sick of writing and I was really sick of coding. And I kind of wanted to just express myself in a different media for a little bit. And I see what you mean. <clears throat> I think especially in history and STS, like going through all these archives, finding all these amazing machines and stories and just wanting to like bring it to life in a way that doing a dry philosophical analysis didn't really let you do. Yeah. Um, and and especially so I had this friend who worked in the factory that was making these Sibian um, sex machines. Oh, yeah. And I was like, this, it's just a sheet metal factory. But it was so amazing when all these machines that stamp metal like a giant printer and then fold it up and weld it together. And it was just a beautiful thing that you can't squeeze that into an academic paper so i was like okay i can do this and that was right at the moment so it was like 99 2000 where firewire came out and mini dv came out and our lab had a mini dv camera because we were filming people doing collaborative problem solving so i had access to this video camera and um yeah so i was like you could actually do all of it on a computer so i didn't have to go to a dark room and deal with film and splicing and all of that. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, you just get Adobe Premiere and you're good to go. So that was really the, f- I think the first era that you could kind of edit video on a computer in a yeah. feasible way. I mean, it crashed constantly. The Firewire <laughs> connection was horrible. <laughs> Rendering took two days. Oh, day of weeks, weeks. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. And I had a really fast machine, but for the time, yeah. um, so, so I was like, I can, if it's on a computer, I can do it. Right. So, so I just went out and did it. And then it was, well, how do you do it? Well, you got to get people to do interviews. So you just start emailing people and doing a lot of research and it was a lot of fun, but yeah, I mostly self-taught. Um, well, I guess the other aspect I should bring, bring up is the, I did study composition, uh, with Herbert Brune, right. who was a composer, of electronic and computer music, who was at the Biological Computer Lab uh, with Heinz von Forrester, and they co-taught this fascinating class in the 70s called Heuristics, um, which was a very philosophical approach to the concept of heuristics. It was a really popular class that the administration shut down because it was leading to student unrest. Oh, how? (laughs) Well, they... they, they, um, they started to produce a whole university catalog that was modeled after the whole Earth catalog. Um, and it was, you know, the 1969-1970, so there was a lot of student demonstrations anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, but it, it started out, I think the first time they taught the class, they had like 15 students. And it was they were so excited about it and evangelized it so well that I think the next semester it was offered, 200 people signed yeah. up. Um, and it started to get a little bit crazy. They compiled all of their work into a book called The Cybernetics of Cybernetics. Okay. Um, that's been reprinted now, thankfully. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating collection of stuff. I mean, they were just, they started applying cybernetic analysis to the educational process and to their own, the students were sort of applying it to their own 
experience of the educational process, yeah. and it became very radical very quickly. Oh, um, yeah. Second order cybernetics, <laughs> corrupting the youth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was, and and Brune was basically still teaching um, that concept, and he was he was you know, a very good teacher and very intense and um he also did a lot of word composition and poetry um so he was very precise about grammar which in many ways was um was also like Wittgenstein and and Peter Wench so it was the very I'd already had that experience with Peter Wench in yeah. my early seminar in Wittgenstein and so I responded really well to it in Brune's class so I had had a I didn't really do much music composition there, but I'd done some video compositions for his seminar. Um, so I'd thought about how to structure this larger work, um, though I kind of still pursued it textually because I, I focused on, I transcribed everything by hand, and then I, the first edits were all done from the transcriptions. Oh, okay. And so I sort of assembled the story by cutting and pasting everybody's words into the story I wanted to tell, and then kept sh reducing and shrinking and cutting and down the sections. Yeah. The, th the other sort of spark to that movie idea was that uh, my advisor had been asked to write a review for Minds and Machines of Hans Moravec's book. Oh, right. And he didn't want to do it, so he asked me to do it instead. Yeah. So I like, got a copy of the book and read it, and I was like, this is horrible. <laughs> like, how can he believe this stuff? I looked at it, yeah, and you're quite critical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I called it techno-prophecy, yeah. uh, something like that. Um, no, I mean, he's just so overly optimistic yeah. about the future in which, okay, we replace all the human labor with robot labor. And this idea that we're all just going to sit at the beach and drink, uh, you know, pina coladas mm -hmm. until the robots figure out that we're scamming them and rise up against us. <laughs> it's like, what? Like, that's not going to happen. You know, there's been automation um, and outsourcing of labor for a long time. And the rich get richer and the poor get nothing. Yeah. It's not like the poor get to go drink margaritas. Um, sure. They're they're just poor. And now they don't have any means of acquiring wealth through their own labor. So those kinds of social tensions that were sort of readily obvious in this if any if if the technology was even remotely capable of doing what he was hypothesizing, the social implications would be so massive and right, unpredictable yeah. that um yeah, I don't know how you can maintain not that it has to be purely pessimistic, but um you know, so I was like, hmm, so that really got me thinking about robots uh and and it was also a good way then to kind of move into more contemporary research uh after my dissertation. So the, the kind of cybernetic stuff I was looking at was mostly 1940s and 50s. Um, and then the robots were much more uh, contemporary. Right. So you eventually, you, you went from sex to war, in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, when I was making Love Machine, I, I already realized, like, the sequel had to be War Machine. Right. Um, and I figured, you know, all's fair in love and war. Uh, yep. These two kind of deep parts of the human condition and, and of all the things that we start to build robots to do um there's really kind of the three big ones now that i've taught a seminar on this a few times so it's love war and labor mm -hmm. right so so we build all kinds of worker robots or robots to do work and labor um and there's also a lot of entertainment robots um, but if you look at all the most of the movies that contain robots in some form 
there there's always a woven into a love story or some kind of war or both yeah, yeah. <laughs> or yeah they're just doing service and labor and uh which is its own problematics right so so i thought that was a good kind of sequel and then to kind of also this idea that the love machine as a kind of concept it's not that there is this single machine but looking at the kind of social network and a and a actor network kind of concept of what what would it take to build such a machine what are the interests you know and, and what's at stake and and how are they sort of engaging each other or failing to engage each other so in the case of of the sex robots i mean you have these very excited people who want to build these sex machines to be really sophisticated uh, but they really don't have the technological means to do that. And then you have these research labs that really have the technological means to right. do that. But they feel like what they really need to be doing is this, you know, specific scientific research agenda mm. that's shaped by all these other cultural forces. Um, not to say that they should be working together, but it seems like they would both, um, you know, they could benefit from mutual engagement. But they choose to sort of isolate themselves into these almost non-overlapping social groups and um so that does itself a kind of fascinating to sort of in the process of interviewing to see how people construct those boundaries um or try to try to bridge them right <laughs> are you equally interested in what robots and our fascination with robots have what that says about humanity right i think i mean i think that's that's the whole idea of a kind of history of technology is there's a there's a, so many layers to what a technology is so there's a f sort of functionality to it and a materiality to it but then there's all these kind of social and cultural hopes and desires and wishes and needs and wants and that get projected into that i mean architecture right I mean, we 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 need buildings to some extent but the way that they look and how we build them says so much about what our culture is and what its hopes and aspirations are and who are the relevant groups and things like that. And it, all technologies do that. So there are this kind of reflection um, of ourselves. Uh, and because they're often humanoid in form, they're even more so, and, or self-consciously, our constructions of ourselves. So especially in the case of building these psychological models, um, I think it's really interesting to think about like what are we saying about ourselves when we represent ourselves in different kinds of scientific models, whether it's psychological, neurological, computational, and so forth. And then when we build these kind of working models, as I call them, um, like robots, that we are projecting, you know, in part what we hope we are, in part what we, you know, fear we might be, or or any number of other kinds of ideas into this artifact into that project. Um, and now that we're building more sophisticated robots, I think uh, we really started to see that. And especially in the case of human-robot interaction, uh, because we have to s deconstruct, well, what is human interaction? Like, what are we doing when we do it, uh, when we engage with one another? Um, if we were trying to simulate emotion, what is it that we think emotion is to be simulated? Um, and that's... You know, there's a lot of research on emotions and, and psychology, but when you look carefully at it, what you realize is they have these radically different models. I mean, Freudian psychology and what emotion is in that is radically different than what most cognitive scientists are going to right. to call emotion. And um, a lot of how they think about it gets 
shaped by their their models. And a lot of that kind of goes untalked about, right? And we just sort of now accept in general that our brains work like computers, that we store things in memory. Uh, You know, these kinds of metaphors are rampant, um, but they're not actually very accurate. I mean, they may be useful for for interaction with one another, but um, it may not be the best way to think about yourself, right? And and so then, like, why are we not thinking about other ways to think about ourselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, and robots, I think, open up much more than computers because the computer is kind of this box yeah. that maybe you interact with through a screen with text or now really good imagery, um, but it's still this kind of very image-based and text-based media where robots allow us to now interact in far more complicated ways with both each other and with the material world. Um, So really thinking about them as media, I think, opens a whole other facet to to thinking about the human condition. Um, Could you explain that a bit more? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't want to give away too much because this is going to be my next book or my first book. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, robots as media. Robots are... a form of mediation, Um, whether you're mediating your engagement to some, you know, teleoperated arm that's reaching out or using a telepresence robot or Mm -hmm. something kind of more straightforward, or you're just pre-programming a robot to vacuum your floor. You know, you now have a new kind of relationship to your floor, right, through this that's being mediated by this robot and, and its interactions, which you have some control over it has some control over, and then you have all these questions of, well, what's control, what's agency, who's doing what, who's responsible for what. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are all really complicated questions, which we don't really understand or solve all the time in normal human relationships with simple, dumb objects. Um, But we do a pretty good job of it most of the time. Uh, And now we're going to have these really complicated, sophisticated objects that are doing lots of things on their own. Uh, and obscuring their origins and who's motivating or controlling them or if there is any motivation or control at all, ultimately. And and so what we mean by all these terms and concepts is also being called into question. So I think it's it's a really big uh, field, as you're aware, um, and uh, people are just starting to kind of wander around through it and figure out what it looks like. Mm-hmm. So you haven't only been working on how to better understand this, but you've also been trying to make a difference. You've been very active in media. You've worked with the military. Uh, what kind of responses have you gotten uh, sort of coming as a troublemaker? So? <laughs> well, um, yeah. So, I mean, I yeah, I went quickly from the sex robots to the war robots. And um, I, I guess I was asked to do an article for an issue on robot ethics. And I was like, robot ethics? What the heck is that? <laughs> so I did a little reading around. I didn't find much, you know, a couple early articles by Wendell and uh, Alan, Colin Allen. I was like, you know, it's it's not just because what I saw was this trend to just do, you, you know, take all the problems that had emerged in AI and philosophy of mind, like the Turing test or whatever. And now we're just going to do it in robots, right? Or now we're going to do it with ethics and like, okay, can a machine think? You know, here's a whole like research agenda. Okay, can machines be ethical? Well, here's a whole research agenda. And and it seemed like, well, actually, what we should be really concerned about much more urgently is not these abstract questions of, uh, you know, whether a machine can have moral agency per se, but, you know, what are we going to do when 
this you know robotic lawnmower runs over your neighbor's dog yeah. um like who's going to be responsible for that right and the self-driving cars and then of course when i'd done the the interviews for love machine a lot of the roboticists especially at mit and the places like that were you know saying that there's a lot of research being done on these military robots and they're going to move quickly and they're going to be around and this was all pre you know september 11 um and uh, they they were so now it was still you know over that decade moved pretty slow and wasn't very much in the public attention uh then now in the last couple of years it's become of course, major front page news almost every day for the last couple of months of drone strikes here and mm-hmm. IED bomb disposal robots there. And so, um, yeah, so then I've, yeah, I've been doing a lot of speaking and engagement around that. And um, because I was really interested in the war machine, I'd done a lot of research on kind of command and control structures, uh, which were heavily influenced by cybernetic theories uh, during the Cold War. Right, yeah. um, all these control regimes for nuclear arms, things like that. Uh, so I'd already done a lot of research on that and was very interested in how it was emerging in the uh, post-internet era. So as this new waves of IIT were coming into the military and looking at the military as this kind of large socio-technical system, like a kind of, the military itself is the war machine, mm-hmm. right? And it's also the kind of the industrial support networks that it needs to create this steady flow of material and technology and innovation and reorganization of its social structures um, in order to operate, right? And to kind of keep feeding itself as this kind of super organism or something, right? So, so I knew a lot about their jargon, like, and their uh, their organization and how that functions. And so when I kind of got really interested in the military robotics, at first I was just sort of talking about, you know, just war theory and like, well, what is, you know, what does just war theory have to say about robots, mm-hmm. whether they're teleoperated or, or fully autonomous? And because um, that just seemed like the logical place to start. Uh, and then it was kind of clear that, well, we really don't want, autonomous killing machines but how do we actually present that argument uh in a rational way yeah uh and that's you know i mean it's easy to appeal to emotions of like fear mm. and say well we wouldn't that be scary you know you've seen terminator right <laughs> we don't want that skynet no way but um yeah i mean but is that really compelling is that even true right so part of it is just doing the research and seeing what these things are capable of and what the implications are. Uh, but then it gets into these really very quickly into these deeper questions. Well, what does it, what does it really mean to take somebody's life? And, you know, just war theory has its, has its uses and, and its um, detractors, but, you know, it, it serves a certain function culturally too, to hold together uh, nations and various kinds of arms control treaties I mean, war is terrible and all sorts of terrible things go on, but there are genuine efforts made to conform to concepts of justice on institutional levels and on individual levels. So, And it's it's really crucially important for soldiers, uh, for their psychological well-being. And so it, it ends up the, this very complicated network of concepts and social institutions that kind of being held together around some very old concepts of what it is to be human and to engage in battle, which have already been challenged a great deal through industrialized warfare of, you know, starting in the late 19th century. And 
wholesale, you know, slaughter by machinery, which, you know, shocked and confused people in the Civil War and then World War One, especially, and then just reached epic proportions in World War II. Yeah. Um, so people kind of backed off from that. We created the United Nations and bolstered the Geneva Conventions. And so a lot of these concepts of just war theory were instrumental in that and establishing state sovereignty and defining a war as a state versus state kind of activity. Uh, now we've moved into a very different kind of era um, where a lot of those ideas are being challenged um, or ignored and sort of moved on from. But like the kinds of standards and ideas that are coming into play are not so clear and have all sorts of repercussions. So you think about targeted killing of individuals, for instance. Like what, what are the bounds on that? Like wh what nations can participate? What, what are the criteria? And what, what kind of precedent does that set? Uh, and as these technologies get more and more sophisticated, the prospects are not good. So, so really trying to then influence at some level the discussion by adding a bit of the philosophy and the foundations to some of these arguments. Um, you know, the press will cover stuff because it's exciting or interesting, but uh, they don't always have a grasp of the sort of rational foundations of these things. So, um, but the you know, people working in the legal field are much more attuned to that, even though they have this different kind of discourse that's based in case law and, you know, what can ha what can happen in a courtroom or who can actually have jurisdiction over something. And so you have this different set of constraints instead of just trying to think through, well, you know, what do, what do we want to say we are as humans such that we can be killed in these situations or not? Yeah. Uh, and do we want to give over our right to be killed or not to a machine, an automated process without any kind of recourse to, you know, human attention, sympathy, understanding, judgment, decision-making, deliberation, all those things which, you know, I, I think are, are some sense morally required if you're going to actively take somebody's life. What do you think about this argument by Ronald Larkin that these machines are going to be more acute, they won't be affected by emotions and so forth? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a kind of a classic AI argument, right? I mean, it, you know, just take it, replace morality with chess, right? right. And it's it's, right. it's it's an old argument, <laughs> and and they kept, you know, this argument popped up even in the '40s uh, and maybe in the '30s, um, but uh, yeah, you know, the chess machines are going to outplay their chess players. And Ashby's first presentation at the cybernetics conference was, "Can a mechanical chess player outplay its designer?" All oh, right. Yeah. Um, and this is where he he actually first come articulates this idea of a system that can learn by trial and error, and if it has enough input information, that it can actually overcome not its designer but its design, right? So it can improve on itself right, yeah. and then potentially be better at something than the people that designed it to, or that it was designed to be. Um, so so yeah, I mean, in that sense, like okay, now we're just substituting ethics for chess yeah. but is that a fair substitution right so superficially formally it seems like you know oh this this logical syllogism should just follow but uh, is there something then that, that's fundamentally different about ethics and i would say yes like there's many things of course pragmatically different about playing a, a formal game like chess given all of its complexity certainly it has very strict rules uh, computers are never unsure of the position of the chess pieces, mm -hmm. right? Things like that, where 
you know, just to get a robot to go across the room, you have massive amounts of uncertainty about the locations of obstacles and obstructions and its ability to get there. And this, even the degree to which, you know, it tells its wheels to spin, um, how much friction there is with the floor and how much the wheel actually spins, mm -hmm. how far it goes in relation to that varies depending on all these factors that it doesn't control. Right. right? And it's constantly having to update and check and, are you know in these fluctuating bands of uncertainty constantly right um much less trying to identify people uh objects complex social relations so if we think about what ethical dilemmas are about they're all always about some kind of complex social interaction so how you know it's not like chess right and and even then there's the sort of more deeper philosophical things about ethics depending on your approach to ethics um you know, I guess the utilitarians could argue that it's in some sense computational and you're just trying to maximize the good. But then you could say, well, okay, well, what, how do you establish value? Yeah. Like we have a capacity as moral agents to establish the value of other things. So maybe moral agents have intrinsic value that we can't, you know, impeach. But like we can choose to value things above their sort of intrinsic value with yeah. spiritual objects and aesthetic objects, um, uh, you know, fetishized things or, or what have you, um, just sentimentality around objects, um, which it seems like, well, that's very different than chess. Like you don't suddenly decide your queen isn't worth anything, right? <laughs> yeah. The queen, may you may sacrifice a queen, but it's in relation to a future move that you value. Yeah. And those values are more or less fixed. Yeah. Um, so this then this idea of how, how, what what is a system that can establish value? That's I mean that's really sophisticated kind of thing that we don't. I mean you could make an arbitrary computer that sort of does something that you call establishing value, yeah. but is it really what we're doing uh, yeah. in the relevant sense? And then there's the sort of deeper Kantian notions of. And, and Heideggerian notions of becoming and self-realization through your ethical choices, right? right? So it's it's one thing just to respect the rights of everybody else and everybody else respect your rights, but what you're actually doing when you make these ethical choices is deciding who you want to be. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, and, and so, and that can be a creative process, yeah. right? It's not just there's this list of A, B, and C that, but that you can invent D, and that's who you want to be. Um, and, you know, where, where are you going to get robots to do that, right? And so I think, you know, the, the deeper sense of ethics and morality, it's, it's not anything like chess. Um, we can then ask a whole series of questions about whether computers or robots could do those things I just described, create value for themselves, create a self-realization of their desired self and human can beingness through these kinds of decisions yeah. and i think that, i mean you know i don't know that it's intrinsically impossible that they do that but we just i don't know that we understand what those processes are and anything like the the level that would be required to synthesize them in a machine mm -hmm. but if you if you add to that argument uh, which arkin does as well that humans are far from perfect and also that we got to protect our troops uh, so and that's the main objective here, yeah. right? So so if you kind of eliminate the the ethical part of it and just just look at it as a pragmatic technological problem, so what you're saying there is, 
Well, we're not really going to call, let's just not call these things moral or immoral, but let's just say they're going to reduce casualties on our side and they may in fact reduce casualties on the other side. And so at that level then, is there this uh, social justification or ethical justification for pursuing that technology and using that technology? And I would say, I mean, several sorts of responses to that. One is, I mean, it's always easy to point out human fallibility. Um, and if you actually look at a lot of the work that's done in disasters and technology and engineering, um, especially in these large systems cases like nuclear reactors and airlines and things like that, uh, where they do these kind of sophisticated analysis of the problem because it has such a magnitude, uh, there's often, like you look at human error in that context, like a lot gets projected into human error that I would say is really design error. Like systems fail, and they fail often at the interface junction at human control. Right. Uh, and it's very often the system is in a state that it's not effectively communicating to the user. So the user thinks it's in some other state or doesn't understand what's going on and takes a set of actions which end up being very bad in the, in the end because of that misunderstanding, right? But So they made mistakes because they didn't do the right thing as an individual human, but the system was failing to present them with information in a way that they were able to understand what was happening. And I mean, this happens all the time. And, you know, when your car starts sliding on the ice, like you don't, you lose that kind of feedback control of what's happening and you start spinning the wheel and you very quickly make a lot of mistakes, right? But it's also that the machine has failed to stay in contact with the road. So, uh, you know, where's the blame? These kinds of questions. But those analysis then say, well, it's human error. The engineering response to that is design the system so that humans make less errors or eliminate the human, right? So it's very easy to chalk up all these mistakes to the human. But then when a system works well, we say, oh, well, this new technology works great. And we kind of write off the fact that there's all these humans running around doing things. So there's also been a, a lot of great studies in the history of science and technology studies that look at this kind of hidden work and boundary work and all the work that people do uh, to make systems work even when they don't really work. Right, yeah. Um, and we, you know, on this level of cultural discussion and political discussion and policy discussion, we, we constantly write out all the work that these humans, you know, engaged, especially in war, are really doing on a day-to-day basis. It's right. a massive amount of labor. And to say, well, they made, there's these mistakes that get made, and now we're just going to make a technology that, that does this in a very set way so those mistakes don't get made, and, you know, that's going to be better. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe. But, you know, it may, maybe you can prove that some numbers wind up better than other numbers in some situation. But, you know, casualty numbers in war are affected by so many factors. There's no way to compare, say, Iraq to Vietnam and say, uh, this war was better or worse in terms of civilian casualties right. because of any particular technology or any particular strategy. Um, a whole lot of things went terribly wrong in both situations, and a whole lot of people did, you know, valorous things in both situations, and yeah. they're just they're so complicated. So I don't really buy this idea that it's going to make war better. And then there's all these inherent risks, and I think that's then where you start say, well, it's, this is not an absolute case, and even even if the technology could 
could do something really great? How does it change our relation to war? How does it change our involvement to war? And what is the practical reality of actually developing these systems likely to turn out? Because one possibility is that it'll turn out that they're better than humans. But there's a whole infinite range of possibilities, right. many of which they aren't better than humans, but they get used anyway. Right. right? Um, because they're much cheaper and much easier to access. You don't have to have a whole lot of people. You don't have to control their, um, you know, propaganda and have a whole, you know, media thing because you no longer need people, right, in, in your organization or you don't need as many is the ideal. Of course, again, that's a lot of hidden work. You look at UAVs and they were, they were constantly being brought up as an example of, you know, how do you reduce labor in the military, but they actually need a lot more people to operate and maintain them uh-huh. than other kinds of aircraft. Right. So... So the, there's always these sort of slights of hand um, in terms of how things get accounted for in, in these kinds of uh, analyses. So given that, what kinds of reactions have you gotten when you've been in discussions with the Army and so on? Um, I've actually gotten a lot of very positive reactions from the military. Uh, something I've noticed is, I mean, the military is, especially, well, the U.S. military I think right now is can safely be said to be the largest institution in the history of the world right. in terms of, I mean, the, the resource capital that it, it controls and shapes and projects around the world is, is immense. And so it's, it's highly complicated and varied and so many entities, nobody knows where they all lead. Um, and so there's a lot of different perspectives within that. From the soldiers on the ground perspective, They want, they want any kind of tool that's going to help save their lives and their friends' lives and make their jobs easier. So they're, they're excited about a lot of those technologies, especially the remote control stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'd say most of them are a little bit freaked out and scared of autonomous systems. You think about how you know, unpredictable your gun might be or your computer or your car, right? They don't always do what you expect them to do, and they're pretty simple compared to you know, robot. Now you're going to give that robot a machine gun yeah. or a grenade launcher or a rocket. And um, if it goes quirky, <laughs> oh man, bad things can happen. So, so I think there's a lot of nervousness around that. Um, and I think there's also the recognition that what they do is, is difficult, sophisticated kinds of work. And it's not so straightforward to design a robot that could say, you know, stop cars at a checkpoint and interview the driver and search the car in an effective way. Um, there's a lot going on there. And then you have, I'd say, like the junior officer class who are sort of more in command positions and understand what that means. And I think in that class as well, there's a strong sense that <clears throat> what command decision-making comes to is very complicated and a skill that they're you know, just starting to acquire or have spent years acquiring. And that's, again, something that, you, you know, trying to automate that or, or say that you're going to write a piece of software that's going to decide when it's appropriate to, you know, bomb a supply depot that's next to a school or a hospital, yeah. right? Like sometimes you have to make those decisions, yeah. but it's a skill. It's something that you learn to do through watching people who have done it for a long time, um, dealing with your own kind of moral considerations and 
and assessing the strategy and the moment. And, and yeah, people make mistakes and people don't always make the right choices uh, or wish they could change them. But there's that learning process. Um, I made a presentation at the Naval Academy to all the philosophy teachers within all of the military schools and academies across the country. Mm-hmm. And I got a really positive response on that because my I was making this argument that you know automating humans out of these systems is really like taking away the next generation of military leaders, right? If you were to, in theory, like automate all of these kinds of lethal decisions and targeting decisions and put it all into a computer, like who's going to learn how to do those things in the future? You're going to become completely dependent on the system. And then then you don't have evolution, right? And military is always evolving because the enemy is always evolving and Mm -hmm. conflicts are constantly changing. So... You know, there's no more future uh, development once you freeze everything in this kind of computer program. So they're very responsive to that because they're very much interested in teaching qualities of leadership and how to make these tough decisions. Right. right. That makes perfect sense also given your emphasis on describing these as social technical systems. And it sounds sort of faintly Aristotelian sort of virtue ethics <laughs> uh, in a sense as well. Yeah, there's a tinge of it. I mean, I think, you know, I... Actually, it's funny that I wound up doing robot ethics. I didn't really pursue ethics at all as a student. Oh, really? I mean, I, I had taught it, and I had to take a couple of classes here and there, but it wasn't really my primary interest. But what became more interesting through the kind of thinking about political justice and um, values, and those as really kind of difficult problems for the computational model to address. Mm-hmm. So I end up kind of cherry-picking ethics from here and there because I'm not really committed to <laughs> any particular theoretical approach. <laughs> I see. Do you have any new projects now? Um, I've been working more recently on the oral history of robotics. So, again, a great opportunity to go and interview all the people you're fascinated oh, by. Yeah. So I've been traveling around the world interviewing the top, hundred or so living roboticists wow. on video and HD. And we we got a grant from the IEEE Robotics and Automation Society. Right. And so we're building an online digital archive for that. Right. <clears throat> we're going to have some, some interesting nonlinear navigation tools. So I got a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Digital Humanities, right. uh, to build that stuff. So we're just, just hired a programmer and uh, we're going to start building that in the fall. So, yeah, we have about 90 hours of interviews so far. 90 hours. Yeah, we're about halfway there. <laughs> so, Did you have any big revelations during these interviews? It, it's, it's very strange. I mean, when I did Love Machine, I knew I'd done so much research on each person I interviewed. I knew exactly what I wanted them to talk about. I didn't know what they were going to say, but I knew what topics I wanted to cover, and I shaped the interviews to get to that. Um, when you do this many interviews for like an oral history, um, I have to admit a few times I go in not really knowing the CVs yeah. too well. Um, sometimes you know them very well. Uh, but how similar and yet different they all are. So everybody has a different story. Um, but you see these start to see these similarities of where people come from, how, where they get excited about... Um, so I think I think that's really interesting. And in general, it's just that people get really passionate yeah. about it. And there's something, about, I think, about robots that a lot of people get passionate about. 
we have the white noise generating <laughs> yeah. from the, the lovely weather of the Netherlands. It's <laughs> a realistic background thing. That's right. It'll add some, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two philosophers sat down to discuss. Actually, an old shark, told me that when he used to do his radio show, he would always record sounds from the surroundings and sort of mix that into the whole thing. So, yeah, I guess I'm doing that right now. <laughs> but one final topic that I wanted to get to and talk to you about is, uh, is the idea of participatory design, which I just found out is a big uh, topic of yours right now. Uh, what is the main idea there? Basically, the idea is how do you get the users of a technology to participate in the design of the technology. Yeah. Um, and I stumbled into it. So it was actually that first seminar I took with Andy Pickering in the sociology of technology. I had to come up with a term paper. Um, and because I'd been a, in the Association for Computing Machinery uh, as an undergrad programming oh, yeah. major, the ACM Communications magazine came to my door. And there was a cover article by Lucy Suchman. Oh, yeah. And I was just blown away by this concept of like, oh, applying all this social theory to the development of technology, right. IT. Like, this is great. And so I didn't know anything about it, so I just started reading all the references and from the magazine, tracking everything back, and then I started to see, wait, this like this whole history of it. So I started writing this kind of history of participatory design, like where did it come from? And there was people who had been participants who had written their own history of it, and it was heavily um, influential and developed primarily in Scandinavia. But it also had this whole British thing, and so there were these kind of two tracks sort of looking at it as a social history of, of science, of these different ideas about what does it mean to involve users. And then again, like, it's very, you know, it seems very easy to say, okay, here's users, here's the technology, here's a process for integrating them. But when you look at these different variants, you start to see that they have very different conceptions about what a user is, what a system right. is, what the relationships are, who should participate in these conversations, how they should participate, and what, what all that means. And then you have this kind of overarching debate coming out of the philosophy of technology and um, critical theory, which is, you know, are these technologies good when we're replacing workers with machines? Like, is that good or bad? And, and the kind of Marxist narrative that it's all going to benefit the capitalists and the management at the expense of workers and labor. But then they were doing these empirical studies in Norway and, uh, and Denmark and, and finding, well, in fact, that doesn't actually what happens all the time. Like sometimes labor kind of wins out over management and sometimes the people like the new technology better than the old technology. And, mm. um, but there were some serious questions that were raised by this uh, history about who's producing technology for whom and well, what are the consequences of it and how does that relate to people's work in particular. So I got really fascinated by that and thinking about um, these kinds of issues, which I think has really come back strongly in my current work with the, the military robotics, which is not to say that they're all necessarily evil uh, or that they're all necessarily good, right? That we have to get beyond this kind of simple bifurcation of yeah. techno-utopianism or techno-dystopianism, that the reality is we are now a society which is constantly innovating, creatively transforming itself with new technologies then it's it's sometimes good and it's sometimes not good and it's always changing and the, what is it changing and maybe we want to step back at certain points um, 
maybe uh, Wendell would call them inflection points. Yeah, exactly. Um, where where we want to take a different route. Like we can push, nudge society towards one route or another, right, or yeah. you know, at least try to um, make those efforts. And you know, I I I always point to transit systems. It's like we could, you know, the United States could move away from cars and move to trains and bicycles if they really, really wanted to, in theory. I mean, nor, uh, the Netherlands have been really great at bicycles and yeah. can get everywhere on the train, and it's it's quite lovely. It's still cars. You know, they don't completely eliminate these other systems, but there are these kind of macro-social policy choices which then influence how the technologies are implemented. Right. And it's not so much like what's the technology capable of or not capable of. It's about how we as a society choose to use it and utilize it and what meanings we associate it with and how that influences our other kinds of social practices. And the microcosm of the office space and the introduction of IT in some sense isn't very inspiring. I mean, cubicles and and Xerox printers are, are not the most exciting technologies, but the level of analysis that they were able to do on the the political dynamics and the social dynamics and the transformations and social practices that, you know, simple changes to the design of a Xerox machine or the introduction of a new database system in an office place have these massive impacts. Um, And then to sort of think about those implications in terms of, okay, now we're talking about replacing soldiers with robots and everybody's sort of, aware that it's going to mean something but what does it actually mean and how do we then start thinking about design uh, of those kinds of systems and where do we draw boundaries and why when we get autonomous machines then war becomes cheaper perhaps maybe i mean these machines are ridiculously expensive though so it's it's it also always kind of strikes me a bit like you know these late night television scams where you know how much money you've wasted cooking eggs the wrong way, and like, here's this new device that for you know 1999 is gonna cook your eggs better than ever, and it's like for 1999, you know, you can buy just a whole lot of eggs for that and just cook them in the pan. But wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah, some other useless piece of plastic. Um, right, and so there's, I think, I think robots. I mean, uh, kids are, you know, sort of preternaturally like attracted these things um and adults too right so there i think there is this kind of toy fetish around yeah we have this high tech it looks high tech it feels high tech it's a robot right or an unmanned system um and so so there's a big seduction to just invest in that for the sexiness of it in a way um you know, and of, of course it has to work to whatever the parameters are. But a lot of the way those acquisitions, they're trying to hypo- hypothesize what war is going to be in the future and then build systems that are going to help them respond to that. And, and this kind of uh, really science fiction kind of thinking. So, and we see that in the Cold War too, right? Like um, Paul Edwards has this wonderful history called The Closed World. Uh, and you see, like, how these narratives emerged. Uh, and I think, you know, Stanley Kubrick captured it really well in Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's the gaps. There's the missile gap and the bomber gap. And we got these gaps. we got to fill the gaps. And and this kind of self-replicating discourse about... And we've seen it around the war on terror. I think you can see it around cyber war and these other things where because something could possibly be a risk or a potential problem, it 
then it sort of becomes a real problem from that potentiality and risk itself mm -hmm. becoming this kind of reality um, that we have to then address with a technological solution, which is actually very expensive. And if you th actually calculate the risks, it's very difficult. We don't know what the probabilities are, what the likelihoods are, and then the downside has a really negative thing. Yeah. Um, and so we become much more willing to invest in preventing it because we don't want the suitcase bomb or, or whatever it is. Um, but I think that that really kind of messes with our thinking. And I think Kahneman and Tversky and their studies on psychological bias, cognitive bias, would 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 agree with that mm -hmm. kind of analysis. That kind of systematically, we're willing to say spend a lot of money to prevent a terrorist attack, even though the actual dangers, if you look at casualties, say, is much much lower than all kinds of other risks yeah. that we don't want to invest anywhere near the kinds of resources into it's just feeding off the panic yeah yeah it's feeding off fear and panic and it's it's high profile and it's it's a salient threat and and so then you know the people who can profit from that are, are also encouraging it and manipulating it and that's not good right now with those forces which uh, this is one of Wendell Wallach's points as well that with these kinds of forces at play, we need a big body of people being critical about it and precisely bringing out these kinds of points. And I'm very thankful that you are doing that. And uh, on that note, thanks for coming. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, that was Peter Rosaro and his very refreshing perspective on robotics and media. I particularly like that he's combining philosophy with sociology and a field known as science and technology studies. I have to admit that this is a type of approach that I've had problems fully appreciating in the past, but it just made perfect sense as put forward by Peter Rosaro, and I'm very, very thankful for that. Okay, so where do we go from here, you ask? Well, I think I just have to admit that academia is too chaotic to commit to a very strict bi-weekly schedule, especially since I'm doing all of this in my spare time. But I will at least do everything I can to stay roughly on that schedule. But I don't want to give any guarantees, so connect with such that cast on Facebook or Twitter so that I can properly notify you when the next episode is out. Until then, take care, and I hope to see you again soon for another episode of Such That Cast.